All right, uh, it's actually just past 7 p.m., so it's about time for us to uh, get started with our Bible study this evening. Uh, Barry's out of town. I think he's in Florida. I don't know. He doesn't tell me. He doesn't tell me anything. Uh, he just sends me. He just sends me his slides and says, "You got it. Um, see you later." Uh, we're going to be in Esther chapter one tonight. We're going to try and uh, hopefully get through the whole thing. Um, full disclosure: Barry knows this text uh, a lot better than I do. Uh, so we're going to work through this together. We're going to we're going to figure it out. Um, but I've tried to prepare uh, as best I can. I have Barry's slides, and candidly, uh, I think his slides and his notes make more sense to his I've been preaching for longer than you've been alive brain uh, than they do to me. Um, so um, I, guess I, I guess I'm saying I'm bear, bear with me uh, tonight, and we're going to do our best um, together. Uh, before we start, let's uh, bow and pray really quickly. Father, we come before you now. We're really grateful for time that we have to gather together and to study your word. We ask that you would open our minds and open our hearts to, to see you and to love you more through our study and that you would help us to desire to learn what you've laid for us and that you would help us to become more of the people that you want us to be. It's in Christ's most holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, let's, let's start off by reading. We'll read uh, the first half of chapter 1. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The following events happened in the days of Ahasuerus. I'm referring to that Ahasuerus who used to rule over 127 provinces extending all the way from India to Ethiopia. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he provided a banquet for all his officials and his servants. The army of Persia and Media was present, as well as the nobles and the officials of the provinces. He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his magic, majestic greatness for a lengthy period of time, 180 days to be exact. When those days were completed, the king then provided a seven-day banquet for all the people who were present in Susa the citadel, for those of, the, of highest standing to the most lowly. It was held in the court located in the garden of the royal palace. The furnishings included white linen and blue curtains hung by cords of the finest linen and purple wool on silver rings, alabaster columns, gold and silver couches displayed on a floor made of valuable stones of alabaster, mother of pearl, and mineral stone. Drinks were served in golden containers, all of which differed from one another. Royal wine was available in abundance at the king's expense. There were no restrictions on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his supervisors that they should do as everyone so desired. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in King Ahasuerus' royal palace. On the seventh day, as King Ahasuerus was feeling the effects of the wine, he ordered Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti into the king's presence, wearing her royal turban. He wanted to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was very attractive. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's bidding, conveyed through the eunuchs. Then the king became extremely angry, and his rage consumed him. All right, so uh, just to kind of um, set the scene here. Man, this was working, and now it's not working. I don't know what's going on. Alan's going to save the day. Uh, but to set the scene here, 
This is King Ahasuerus, it'll work now? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so time period 483 to about 473 BC is, BC, yeah, is when this is taking place. Ahasuerus is also known in kind of more, I guess, uh, ma mainstream history, I don't know, secular history as, as, as Xerxes, um, which is apparently the Greek translation of his name. He reigns from about 486 to 465, um, and so the events of Esther take place within that uh, time period. Um, anybody got any ideas about um, knowing a little bit about that history time period? Any history buffs have some ideas about what this banquet might have been about or coincided with? Uh, not the fall of Babylon. It's it's more so uh, looking forward to something. I know John Mayberry knows the answer. And so in 480, the Persians are going to go invade Greece, and that's where you get like 300 and Leonidas and the like. They're going to fight, and he's like, "This is Sparta." That whole thing. This is like three years before that, and so the Persians are basically gearing up for that. And so this would have been probably coinciding with a war council that's kind of like revving people up for that, trying to get support from all of the kind of political people in, involved in this empire of, hey, I'm King Hazarus and I want to go attack Greece. Like, let's do this. And kind of garnering political support uh, for that. So within... Um, within this, is there anything that you notice uh, within this first, yeah, Wayne? You know, it's interesting that also, uh, if I looked over in, at Ezra, Ezra was about at 440 when the first group went back to, uh, you know, all they got really done was the altar and the sacrifices, and that was even before Ezra went back. That was the first people that were set back. But here you are just a, just 43 years after the first people went back. And so, you know, in the later in this, the it, it says 483 to 473, that's, on, that's a 10-year gap when it may have started. But during that period of time, there's stuff going on in Jerusalem. It just doesn't say anything about it. One of the unique things about this book is it, it doesn't tell you what's going on anywhere else except in these 26 provinces where, and if you think how far India is away from Ethiopia, I mean, that is incredible. <laughs> One of the biggest kingdoms yeah. ever. Yeah, so I uh, love that you highlight the uh, expanse of the empire. I think that is significant. Also, yeah, you're right of like, this is a time period where some of the Jews have started to go back and, and Esther and, and Mordecai and kind of their, their friends, I guess, would be people who, who didn't go back, right, to start kind of help, helping rebuild Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. But certainly the effect or the events that are going to happen in Esther, the events that are going to be taking place, have a direct impact on the things that are going on in Israel, particularly the idea that, hey, there's kind of some, some restoration going on here that is intended to, to lead us to the, the time of Christ. If, if things in Esther don't go the way that they go, all of that gets 
gets shut down because the Jews get wiped out, right? So uh, I think that's great to keep in mind that there are, are Jews in other places in the world while this is happening of particular note would be in Jerusalem trying to rebuild. Um, are there any things that you notice uh, within these first 12 verses that um, maybe connect back to some of the themes in the book that we've talked about or maybe foreshadow things that are going to happen? Um, anything that you notice uh, of, that, of that nature? What is, what's maybe the significance of that? Or like, uh, why is there so much detail provided around uh, these descriptions of, of this banquet and, and uh, Hazarus's wealth? Why spend so much time talking about that, do you think? that's a part of it. I think uh, we maybe know from studying Daniel, and certainly if you were reading this more, at, more so at this time, you would know, like, Hazarus' empire doesn't last forever. Um, he has all of this, this wealth, and eventually uh, Alexander the Great is going to come in and find all of this wealth, and I guess it's going to become Alexander the Great's wealth. And so there's a little bit of this foreshadowing of, hmm, I'm, you're kind of like, it would, be, uh, it would be like saying, you know, in the days of Richard Nixon, who governed over the 50 states of the uh, United States of America, and you'd be like, oh, okay, like, that guy is going to, like, maybe not be remembered super well. You kind of have this sense of like, okay, Ahasuerus is being portrayed in a very favorable light right now, but we, we kind of know just from history, this isn't going to necessarily be uh, the long-term legacy of Ahasuerus. Um, any other thoughts along that line? Yeah. Uh, don't you think that he just, he had this face so that he could show his power? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely like the intention here, uh, especially because he's trying to expand his empire, right? Like he's basically getting ready to say, hey, I'm ruling from Ethiopia to India. I would also like to add Greece to that. Uh, so <laughs> let me show you how powerful I am so that I can go accumulate more power by conquering another nation. Yeah, so absolutely. I think that's definitely what's going on. Anything else? Okay, I'm going to gamble and click my next... Um, okay, yeah, cool. I talked about that. Um, what about 
Um, oh, this was an interesting historical detail that Barry included, so I'm going to talk about it uh, because maybe it gives some context on um, why is everybody getting so drunk here, and particularly in the next section. Uh, we would probably think about consuming a bunch of alcohol and getting drunk as maybe not the best way to make decisions. Uh, for whatever reason, the Persians would drink uh, specifically when they were going to make decisions. Uh, seems like partially they would do so because they thought it got them closer to a, some sort of spiritual realm, um, and so that it was like going to improve their wisdom. And it does. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You could maybe make a case for that. Uh, but also, um, I guess they would basically... It doesn't improve your decisions. It doesn't improve your decisions. And it seems like maybe they had a sense of that because they would make decisions while they were drunk. And then if they liked it when they were sober, they would stick with it, uh, is, is what, I, what I came across. Um, so that's kind of that. Uh, did I see a hand? No? Okay. Um, what do you think about this uh, parading the queen? What's the idea going on there? Well, he's just showing everything else, so there's a mental health. Why not show off some fantastic wives? Yeah, so it's part, probably part of like his goal of of garnering uh, some political some political power. Um, What's kind of the, the results or the implication of her refusal? Like, why is that a big deal beyond like, hey, I'm your husband and it's kind of annoying that you didn't listen to me? What's kind of the bigger picture there, maybe? Disobeying the king. Okay, disobeying the king. Yeah. Uh, why would it be a big deal, particularly within the context of... Uh, yeah, that's true. So I think that's a great point of like her disobedience certainly creates this kind of ripple effect uh, that's going to go throughout. And we'll talk about that actually in a sec of like there's a lot of really tiny just kind of happenstance things that cause subsequent waterfall um, things. Michael, you were going to say something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, I'm out here trying to get all these guys ready to go attack Greece with me. How am I supposed to convince them that I can command an army if I can't even get you to do what I want? So it kind of makes him look pretty uh, incompetent, right? When she refuses um, to, to kind of concede his request. Um, so are we supposed to look favorably upon Vashti? Are we supposed to uh, vilify her, I guess? What do you guys... What do you guys think is the correct way to look at her actions here? It's hard to know because we don't know any of her intentions. Was she afraid of going? I think Barry talked about this before. I think, you know, you could infer that she might be the only female going into this huge group of drunken men. She may be insulted by it. She may be defiant without knowing. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way to look at it. It's hard to tell really why she doesn't want to go. We know that Hazarus is drunk. She 
I guess might have been drunk, presumably if the guys are drinking, so are the girls, I guess, but like we don't know for sure. And we don't know why she doesn't want to go. Maybe she thinks it's a bad idea in terms of garnering political power and she's trying to help them out. Um, I think the danger that we want to avoid is trying to slice it uh, one way or the other. Um, I was actually talking to a guy recently who was adamantly convinced that no, like she was like being very defiant and this whole, this whole chapter is about uh, modeling uh, male headship and like she should have been obedient and gone to Hazarus and like he was right to divorce her and I was like, okay, well, I don't think that that's quite what the text is saying. So I think it's, uh, it's dangerous to look at this um, and try to read too much into her intentions because we don't know what they were one way or the other. Um, yeah. But she made her own feast for the women. Yeah, so it's possible that she was just being selfish and was like, I don't want to go. I've got my own party going on. Uh, we just don't know. Um, why do you think the author does um, kind of refrain from um, making some of these moral judgments? I kind of give it away because these are Barry's slides, not mine. Yeah, Danny. I think this kind of <clears throat> plays into the fact that it's a pretty serious thing to rebuke the king. Yeah, yeah. We're kind of trying to see that. Um, yeah, that this is there's like it's a pretty big deal to uh, go up against the king. Like, why is that significant? Yeah, John. Based on everything else that we know about Ahasuerus and kind of his decision making, it seems plausible that he would have just had her killed. Uh, and so uh, certainly there's a lot of significance here to the fact that she um, disobeys him, I guess, and particularly what that means for uh, the rest of the story, right? Because Esther is going to be in sort of a similar situation where she's trying to negotiate with this guy who seems, just from this scenario, pretty easily uh, enraged and is going to have to basically be in a similar scenario where mm, if I get on his bad side or I cross him in, in the wrong way or, or come at him on, the, on a bad day, I could end up just like uh, Vashti. And I think that's kind of uh, what we're seeing. Any other thoughts on, on that? Yeah, Micah. Thank you. 
Mm, yeah, I love that connection of like, it just so happens that even though Hazarus has a track record of getting mad at his wives, just so happens that she is uh, on his good side. I think that, that, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. He could have extended his sure. Or not. Yeah, it illustrates that God's uh, providence is at work uh, in the story. Um, yeah, I think um, you have this situation where there's basically one guy and he's got all of the, of the power. Um, I think I mentioned this maybe last time I was talking teaching class, but like the character that I have been imagining for a Hazarus is Kuzco from Emperor's New Groove because he's just kind of this king who seems to kind of be like in his own world, like rolling how he wants to roll, not really like thinking through his decisions. And like if you throw off his groove, that's it. And so he's just kind of all about me and my wealth and my power and doesn't really seem to care too much about um, anybody else. And so this is the guy who's in charge, uh, is somebody who has all of the power and isn't particularly concerned uh, with the needs or wants or anything of anybody else. Um, okay, let me see here. We talked about that. We talked about that. Um, Why do you guys think the story starts here? Uh, like, could you not start in chapter two and just be like, King Hazarus was looking for a new wife, da 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 da. Like, why do you think it, it starts here? Yeah, I think there's some character development going on. Uh, I think partially, yeah, it's kind of trying to see Hazarus and, and who he is, but also trying to set up like the environment that Esther is going into and the culture of the world that they're in uh, is one that's not particularly merciful um, or, uh, I guess, favorable to women, I guess. Um, one other thing that we want to note, and we kind of just talked about it, is the idea of all these tiny little um, decisions that create these ripple effects and, and um, kind of chain reactions. Um, and I think those things still kind of affect us today. Like we live in a world where people make decisions and those cause chain reactions. And sometimes it can be really small things that connect to bigger events. And you can maybe, um, think of like examples of that in your own life of, ooh, like if I hadn't like run into this person at, at this coffee shop on this day, they would have never like given me so-and-so's phone number and I would have never like ended up becoming friends with this guy and uh, um, whatever. That's like how I met my college roommate. It was like he was a friend of a friend and we happened to like get connected and now he's one of my best friends. So you can probably think of like tiny little chain reactions in your life um, that have affected big things. I think that even has a ripple effect um, throughout kind of the world. How, how maybe should we be thinking about living our lives in, in light of that? And the fact particularly that a lot of those events are outside of control and or we don't have a lot of information about what's, what's really going on.
Well, a lot of people like to attribute it to God that he put them in your path. Yeah, okay, so uh, maybe there's an approach where it's like everything uh, is, is God, and certainly maybe there's a point where that goes uh, too far, and it's like, okay, maybe that just happened and it was random chance. Uh, any other thoughts? Yeah. Well, she set an example following the woman. Uh, Vashti did? Yeah, and that's what they were afraid of, is that, that they would go against the husbands. That's true. Hold that thought, and we'll get to that in our in our second section. Um, yeah. What else? Uh, yeah, Michael. It's like a kind of thing, maybe like Joseph, where in the moment Joseph probably didn't know that it was God working, but maybe when you look back at it, like it's a little bit easier to see where God was working. So maybe not attributing these things to God in the moment, saying, "Oh, I see God. You're trying to tell me to do this right here, right now." But Looking back on things, I think we can certainly say something like, I'm confident that we're going to have a long way to go. I'm going to be on this path. Yeah. Yeah. John, you're looking forward to it. The things that we often think are the big, important things that we need to focus on, they may not have any impact that we're looking for, whereas it's the things that are consequential things that we're not going to pay attention to or get much credence to. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's kind of partially the idea. Julie, do you have a comment? So how do we live? Um, obviously, God comes first, and we trust Him. Sometimes we're good. Ecclesiastes tells us we enjoy them. They do day by day, we enjoy the, just the simple things of life. When things are bad, He says there's a time for everything, so we know that that season is going to change, and so that's one way to get through it, depending on God. So I guess that's kind of my idea. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's spot on. I think um, I think it was maybe last week, John. You had made a comment about uh, kind of the historical context of like Greece and like if if the Persians had been able to overrun Greece, then the Romans would never have arisen, and that would have affected um, the world that like we had when Jesus was born. The idea that um, I know it's very easy to get caught up in like trying to control things or trying to. Uh, I don't know, make sure we have the right answers. Uh, that can be particularly true when it comes to like geopolitical stuff and like politics and, and the leaders that we serve under. And we kind of have a picture here of political leaders who are making seemingly inconsequential decisions seemingly arbitrarily. And it would maybe give us the feeling of like, wow, if that's how stuff is happening, of just like, there's just these guys and they're in charge and they're just like doing whatever they think is right. And in this scenario, are doing it while they're drunk, or giving power to or giving that, that they like. power to anybody they like, is like how how is how are we going to survive? But I think what we see in this example is even though it seems random and arbitrary and chaotic on the surface, God is still the one in control. So I think that that goes back to your point, uh, Julie. Of we can still have peace in those scenarios, knowing that even though even though those rulers might have, feel like they have no clue what they're doing, God is still very, very much in control and able to work through their decisions to uh, accomplish his will. Um, 
let's keep reading and get into the second half of chapter 2. The king, uh, sorry, starting verse 13. The king then inquired of the wise men who were discerners of the times, for it was the royal custom to confer with all those who were proficient in laws and legalities. Those who were closest to him were Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsana, and Memucan. These men were the seven officials of Persia and Media who saw the king on a regular basis and had the most prominent offices in the kingdom. The king asked, by law, what should be done to Queen Vashti in light of the fact that she has not obeyed the instructions of King Ahasuerus conveyed through the eunuchs? Memucan then replied to the king and the officials, the wrong of Queen Vashti is not against the king alone, but against all the officials and all the people who are throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the matter concerning the queen will spread to all the women, leading them to treat their husbands with contempt, saying, when King Ahasuerus gave orders to bring Queen Vashti into his presence, she would not come. And this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard the matter concerning the queen, will respond in the same way to all the royal officials, and there will be more than enough contempt and anger. If the king is so inclined, let a royal edict go forth from him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media that cannot be repealed, that Vashti may not come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king convey her royalty to another who is more deserving than she. And let the king's decision that he will enact be disseminated through throughout all his kingdom, vast though it is. Then all the women will give honor to their husbands from the most prominent to the lowly. The matter seemed appropriate to the king and the officials, so the king acted on the advice of Memucan. He sent letters throughout all the royal provinces to each province according to his own script and to each people according to their own language that every man should be ruling his family and should be speaking the language of his own people. All right. Um, so what is maybe the concern of um, these seven counselors? Yeah, Danny. I think this incident made the headlines in Persian times. You think so? <laughs> or at least the tabloids, right? Yeah. Well, probably the tabloids, yeah. He's, he's going to have to deal with this. Okay, so it seems like potentially... Uh, what has gone on with Hazarus and Vashti and how she wouldn't come to the, to the banquet has started to spread and people are starting to hear about it. Yeah. Well, he probably had the heads of all the other provinces he was over there at this, at this feast. So, I mean, the news is out. He's been publicly humiliated. He's got to take it. He's got to make some action out of this. Yeah, so he's got to do something about it. Um, what is, what's maybe ironic about his solution? Yeah, it's like, it's like the equivalent of like posting it on social media. So he's like starting to broadcast it even more. Uh, with like so that uh, everyone will hear about how Vashti has basically humiliated him. Um, do you notice anything else that is kind of like funny or ironic uh, in the text, or maybe that you just personally find humorous? It's funny to me that they're all eunuchs and they don't have lives, most likely. Uh, I don't think these guys are eunuchs. Oh, they're I did. I was confused about that too, though. I was like, man, well, it seems like. Yeah, so the eunuchs are, I think, serving a lot in the court, uh, but it seems like these guys are advisors who 
uh, have wives, not eunuchs. Yeah. I think it's ironic that, that he's sending out this edict telling everybody to be master of their own house, and he's not master of his. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of like, okay, like he's, he's trying to uh, legislate this thing that he clearly has not even, even mastered. Um, yeah, what else? Yeah. Well, the one thing that, that I saw was that he, he punishes uh, Asher, the queen, by not letting her, by taking her down a step or two, you know, but she's not, she's not, um, and he has the right to take her place. But yet, they're worried about all the men and their wives and how, yeah, okay, it's like, yeah, so what's kind of weird about this edict in particular? Like, oh no, our wives are going to start thinking for themselves. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of the sentiment. Uh, I don't know, I'm not married, so I can't really speak to this. Um, I don't know, so maybe it's this. If you were a husband, <laughs> I would imagine, and hopefully the husbands in the room can attest to this, I imagine issuing an edict that says, hey wives, I'm ruling over our household, maybe not the best way to, to like earn the respect of your wife. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, it makes him look worse. It's kind of a silly way to uh, try and deal with the issue because now, if he was worried about it getting out before, for sure now all of the women in the kingdom have heard about what's going on and know that the guys are worried about this, uh, worried about this happening, and so. It seems like kind of a, a silly, um, a silly decision. Any other thoughts on that? Just, just to give you an idea of his personality, when he actually took his million-man army to invade Greece, they had to cross the Hellespont, which is about a mile of water. So they created a giant pontoon series of bridges to move this million-man army across. And the storm came in the night after they built it and ripped it all apart. He had the Hellespont flaw the water because it defied him. <laughs> <laughs> this is his thought process. He didn't want to you defied me, so flaw the water. And then they built the bridges to get it across. That is the first Okay, that is, uh, that's some great, uh, I guess, extra biblical commentary there on, yeah, I think the kind of, um, the kind of guy that we're dealing with. Maybe like, how should we evaluate these rulers? Like, what's kind of the picture that we're getting of uh, these guys? Yeah, so it seems kind of silly that they're making this decision while they're drunk. What else? So than actually ruling their 
Yeah. Oh, that's a great point of like, because we kind of see that with Haman too. Uh, these guys are pretty concerned about pomp and circumstance and seem a little bit detached from the people that they're actually uh, ruling over. Um, say what? Things haven't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could make the case that things haven't changed much uh, either. I think, I think particularly um, it's maybe significant that these are the guys who are um, in power and they're trying to kind of enact all of this. These are also the guys that Esther is kind of trying to go toe-to-toe with. Do you see any irony in who Esther is and who these guys are and kind of their, uh, I guess, perception of women? Say what? She's an orphan, number oh. one. I mean, her parents have died, and she really has no power at all. But she just finds herself in this place. Yeah, so she's coming in from certainly a, um, maybe the opposite background of somebody who does not have a lot of power. And she's a lot smarter than them, evidently, or she at least outsmarts them, right? You have all of these guys who are supposed to be the wise Persian rulers, and Haman, I guess, is not mentioned in this chapter, but he's kind of in that cohort of these type of guys. And these guys are, in chapter one, trying to make this edict to basically, like, really cement, like, the patriarchy um, in, like, a really literal way. And... um, they're outwitted by the end of the book by a Jewish woman. So not a Persian woman, a person, and not a, a, a guy like they are. And so I think there's some irony uh, in that, that that's the kind of person that God is using uh, in particular to work out his will in this story. It's not somebody that you would, um, not somebody that these guys would look at as a uh, threat or somebody who would have power to kind of go toe-to-toe with them. Um, okay, I'm going to make sure I go through all the various slides. Um, any questions about the speak the language of his people thing? You guys know what that means? Okay, uh, so um, if you go from Ethiopia to India, you've got a lot of different languages. And so you would have had a lot of basically uh, interracial marriages, and you would have probably had people who are speaking different languages. And so um, you, uh, we experienced this with the Israelites, right? When they, I think in Nehemiah, they go back and they're married to, uh, I don't remember what other nation it is, but their kids don't know how to speak uh, Hebrew. And it's, and it's like a problem that these Israelites have married women that they weren't supposed to marry because they're not Israelite women. And so you have this problem of who's kind of determining the language of the family. And so that's kind of the idea of speak according to the language of his people. Um, Okay. Any other thoughts on chapter one or Esther as a whole? Yeah, Debbie. Something that, that strikes me is the marriage between the king and the queen was very different than what a marriage in modern day America is. The queen, we learn later, could only come to see the king when she was called. And 
So it wasn't like he would consult with her before making any decisions or anything like that. So I can kind of understand that they, it didn't sound like it would be a very close relationship. Yeah, yeah. And certainly a lot of those marriages would probably have been uh, political. You're definitely right of like... I mean, he also, by now he has a harem, and so yeah. he's very particular about when he calls the queen. Yeah, definitely we're not dealing with somebody who is a, like a, a loving husband. And I think that's probably important for the context of like when Esther is dealing with, um, with everything that's going on. Like that adds to the tension of like, it's not like this guy is her husband and kind of the way that we would think of today and like, you know, they have a great relationship. This is a guy who's like, he's got a lot of women <laughs> and doesn't seem to have any qualms with throwing them aside, killing them, whatever. Um, yeah, Wayne. Got a very shallow process to pick a new wife. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> also it's a great point. He's got one criteria. It's not... Is she, is she a really good at, you know, what I'm weak at? And, and I would urge anybody that's single, figure out what you're just really no good at and find somebody <laughs> that's really good at. Yeah, uh, Hazardous is definitely not using a particularly discerning process uh, to find uh, a new wife. We'll get into that uh, in Chapter 2. Uh, yeah, Micah. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. How, how does she have so much power over the king and decision making? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point to end on. Um, I think what we really want to see from chapter one is just kind of the big picture of the culture and the environment that Esther is taking place in. Of one where, like, women don't necessarily have a lot of power, one where it's pretty dangerous. You've got a king who kind of rules with reckless abandon and you need to tread lightly around him, it doesn't seem like in that scenario any of the things that happen should happen the way that they did. And so that helps us to, I think, see a picture of God's uh, providential intervention in ways that are not grand and miraculous but are subtle and through humans' interactions and decisions, how God is still totally able to control and rule over that scenario, and uh, I guess even in under subpar leadership, God is still the ultimate authority, um, and we're going to see that throughout the rest of this story. Uh, that's all I got. Thank you guys for bearing with me. Barry will be back uh, next week.